Uh, it's great to be here. It's great to hear what uh, RTS Charlotte is doing in terms of taking seriously uh, the call for the church really to, to step up to the plate and address human issues of sin and suffering. Um, historically, the church has always done this, uh, and there was a pretty radical shift in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and uh, uh, we hope, we think there may be some movement back in the direction of, uh, of the local church functioning as a real caring community for people. So uh, I'm excited to, to be here tonight. Uh, it's a privilege to be on the campus again. I was here a couple of years ago. Um, and for those of you who don't know me, briefly, um, I am married almost 26 years to my wife, Barbara, and uh, I have four children. My daughter, Hannah, is here tonight. She's newly married as of last summer, and she lives in Winston-Salem, and she's helping me out some with some of the work I'm doing with uh, my new organization called the Institute for Pastoral Care. But uh, I uh, went to Westminster Seminary after doing campus ministry for three years at the University of Georgia, and uh, graduated, did pastoral ministry for two years in Clemson, South Carolina. Uh, the pastor there told me to come and work with him for five and then plant a church, and he left in two years. So uh, it was a good leaving, but uh, they called me to be the pastor. So I was uh, the pastor there for about eight years. And then for the past 13 years, uh, as of two years ago, I was, at West, um, I was at CCF in Philadelphia as a faculty member, a counselor, running the organization. And just recently, uh, it's, it's hard to believe it, time moves quickly, but for the past year and a half, I've been starting an organization called the Institute for Pastoral Care, which really is focused on helping leaders, number one, care for their pastors better, because um, sometimes we don't do a very good job of that, and uh, I've been a pastor, thankfully, I was cared for well, um, but uh, I, I do know the the experience of not being careful well, but then coming in and helping pastors and elders and deacons and key ministry leaders, men and women, think about how they can better care for the people that are attending their churches. And not just with what we would call the normal sins and sufferings that are just a part of being a human being in a broken world, but also focusing on the more acute uh, issues of temptation and sin and suffering. Oftentimes where we're bumping up against what we think we know and, and we feel challenged and, and out of sorts because these issues seem to be beyond our, our ability to help. And, and uh, I really believe the, the grace of the gospel, the scriptures uh, give us what we need. Uh, they're sufficient and then they also provide the categories that we need to interface wisely with secular psychiatry and psychology. Um, we're called to do that, to engage the culture and to do that wisely. So uh, I work with churches and uh, help them think about how to improve their pastoral care. And that's what the work of the Institute for, the past, uh, Institute for Pastoral Care is about. Let me give you a sense of where we're going tonight. Uh, you were handed two things from me, and one of them was a case study. Celia? And then another thing that you were handed was a card. And I'm going to do some teaching, kind of introduce uh, the whole topic of uh, anxiety, worry, fear. And then we're going to take a little break. Um, I'm, I'm probably not going to let you get up and roam around because you don't have a whole lot of space to do that. 
but I will get you to work with the, the case study. And during that time, if you are interested in getting my monthly e-news or being on a mailing list for the Institute for Pastoral Care, uh, there's a card for you to fill out, and you can do that. Uh, hopefully you won't do it while I'm speaking, but um, do it during that time that you all are looking at the case study, and then um, we'll ask you to turn those in. And as a, as a, a slight uh, manipulative ploy, uh, the way I'll get you to turn those cards in is I've got two copies of the relationships curriculum. There's a leader's guide and a, a student guide. Um, for two people, and I'll pick your names from the pile, and you will win something, all right? This is not the lottery. It's not gambling. It's being generous. Um, so, um, yeah, and I, so we'll, we'll get down to uh, practical matters and hopefully uh, give you not only a way of thinking about the issue of worry and anxiety and fear, but also give you a better handle on how you might might be more useful to one another. Uh, by the way, um, women aren't the only people that struggle with worry and fear and anxiety. Uh, typically, you express it differently than we do as men. Uh, you tend to uh, shut down. Men get angry. That's what their fear and anxiety and worry is saying about them. Uh, their anger is telling you that they're, they're not feeling safe. And the way that we admit that is we don't admit it. We get angry. We assert ourselves. Say, I'm not afraid. Uh, women tend to respond differently. They tend to express their worry and anxiety differently. So this is a universal struggle. It's not, uh, it's not uh, situated in one gender or the other. Now let me tell you a little bit about um, the book when, uh, when I wrote this book, I started writing this book probably um, late fall 2013 on into January, and then we moved from Philadelphia to Atlanta, Georgia, where we live now, and uh, so I was still writing it within the midst of a move. Uh, a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry. When the publisher first approached me, I had a, a list of topics and ideas that I wanted to write on, and they said, no, we don't think that's really helpful. We don't think you should do that. We need somebody with your background and experience to write a book on worry and anxiety. Um, and this is a publisher in the UK, the Good Book Company. They do some great uh, work. Uh, Tim Keller has published some things by them, his Galatians for You, Romans for You commentaries. Um, but they, they're also well-connected here in the States. Uh, but they, they wanted me to write a book on anxiety and worry. And, and I, I told them up front, I said, you know, I'll think about that, but I don't know if I have a whole lot to say. And uh, you should never say that. Um, uh, so I, I started, you know, the first thing I did is I started researching, right? Not thinking about my own issues. I started researching out there, um, doing Google searches, asking friends, hey, what are some good books? And then I started to, to look inward a little bit, and I started to see the vestiges of anxiety and worry in my own life, and started wrestling with those things I was reading, uh, the scriptures, as I was wrestling with the scriptures, and what emerged was this very simple book on worry and anxiety. And my target and my aim in this book was not to uh, winsomely attract, you know, 
the professional unbeliever. Uh, the, the target audience I had in my mind were my two oldest children. Uh, my daughter, who is 24, and my son, who's 21. So they were a year younger when I was writing this. I said, I want to write something that they would pick up and read, and I want to write something that the busy, frantic person who's struggling with anxiety and worry will actually pick up and read. So if you look at it, it's 140 pages, and uh, the chapters, I think, are consumable in short moments. Uh, Worried, anxious people don't typically like to sit down and ruminate about their worry and anxiety. Um, the other thing that's interesting, too, and this is, some, this is maybe a commentary on, on our uh, evangelical and reform subculture here in the States. In the UK, uh, they can't afford to uh, write books that are the length of the books that we publish here. And they actually say, we think most of the books that Christians publish and write in the States are a third too long. And they said, the reason you can get away with it is because you have a much bigger audience to sell to than we do. And if we're going to write something and publish something, it's got to be consumable. It's got to get people's attention so that they'll pick it up and read it. And so for me, the exercise as a writer was very, very illuminating, challenging. I had a wonderful editor. His background is in journalism, a guy by the name of Carl Lafferton, um, one of the top guys at the Good Book Company. And uh, this was my experience. I'd, I'd uh, write a chapter. I would just be amazed at my ability to communicate and uh, enamored with my own uh, thinking and writing. And I would send it to Carl, and he would say something like in an email back to me. And, and we worked well because I like candor, and if you're dealing with the Brits, they're going to be candid with you. So it's a wonderful working relationship. He said, you know... Um, I, I like the first three or four pages, but, uh, you know, I, I don't really get tied in. You don't grab me until page four, and I just feel like you're waggling at the T far too much. You know, and you know what that is. You know, it's somebody who's standing there with golf clubs, and they're sitting there for 15 minutes thinking about hitting the ball. And that was his way, his British way of telling me, we need to get to the point right away. And so he would oftentimes say, let's just do away with the first three pages. And I would typically write him back and say, you're right. There were a few places where uh, I said, no, I think this is important and it needs to stay. And, and, it, and it worked well. But, but he was, he was uh, ruthless with me as an editor. And that's really what you, what you want and need. So um, what I'm doing tonight is going to be a little bit more technical, not terribly more technical as we think about worry and anxiety, um, but it, it is not the focus and the emphasis that I brought to the book. Uh, I wanted the scriptures and the grace of the gospel to ring clearly and solidly in the book to help people who are struggling with anxiety, whether it's a normal daily issue or whether it's moved into what we would call a more pathological struggle. I wanted the book to really rivet their attention on the grace of the gospel, but also take seriously the struggle itself, to not minimize it, okay? Uh, so, anyway, that's, uh, that's what we're going to do. I'll, I'll do some teaching. We've got a case study, and we're going to think aloud with one another about, in light of the case study, how we can be useful, more useful to people who struggle with anxiety, people like ourselves. Uh, Am I leaving anything out? Uh, okay. 
Well, let, let's move on. Um, I, I have an, an outline and you have an outline, and sometimes in the process of emails, they don't always turn out being the same. So, uh, yes. All right, I, I've got a great quote here from Soren Kierkegaard. If you're going to write on anxiety and worry, um, you, you, have to, you have to quote Kierkegaard. Now, he, I didn't quote him in the book, but you know, I, have, I have liberty tonight. Soren Kierkegaard, you can see why he's considered the father of modern existentialism, right? A sense of angst. Um, he says this, All existence makes me anxious. From the smallest fly to the mysteries of the incarnation, the whole thing is inexplicable inexplicable to me, I myself most of all. To me, all existence is infected. I myself most of all. My distress is enormous, boundless. No one knows it except God in heaven, and he will not console me. No one can console me except God in heaven, and he will not take compassion on me. So here's a a genuine believer, right? He was the father of modern existentialism, but here's a a guy who's wrestling as a Lutheran in Denmark in the 1800s with a struggle with anxiety, and you you sense how palpable the struggle is. And um, before you you dismiss Kierkegaard, what he just did there sounds a lot like some of the Psalms that I read, right? You know, there aren't any nice, tidy, you know, ends that are tied up and look pretty. This is, this is complex. This is a struggle, and, and Kierkegaard captures that sense. Um, the, uh, the literature, if you read it, says, the first known representations of anxiety are found in cave paintings from the Paleolithic era. They vivid, vividly depict sources of fear, usually dangerous predators such as lions, wolves, and bears among our primeval ancestors. Uh, so you look at uh, archaeology and you see these paintings and our, our primeval ancestors are wrestling with, with worry, fear, and anxiety. It's, it's a part of the human condition, and we would say because of uh, the brokenness that, that we live in. Uh, but I think the, the experience of worry and anxiety and fear goes back even further, and uh, you all are familiar with Genesis chapter 3. Listen to this. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. This is on the heels of Adam and Eve's disobedience and, and rebellion. Uh, the, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife and themselves from the presence of the Lord, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And and that, that uh, section of Scripture is, is rich, isn't it, in explaining the experience that we have uh, as fallen human beings and the issues of worry and fear that are, that are endemic to the human condition. Um, fear, worry, and anxiety. And you might argue that the rest of Scripture really is addressing that issue, beginning in Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation. Um, it's addressing the issue of fear and anxiety and, and worry. And when I was writing this book, a, a lot of people said, now, uh, did you find it difficult to, to really find passages to use as you wrote this book? And I said, no, my problem was choosing which ones I was and wasn't going to use, right? Because it's rich. Uh, look, at the, uh, 
the early sections of the Old Testament, read through the prophets. Uh, you can't help but see it in the Psalms. Uh, you see it um, uh, in the New Testament. Jesus, of course, teaching on worry and the whole issue being addressed uh, all the way until the book of Revelation. So it's, it's, a, it's a theme, a topic that runs throughout the entire uh, scriptures. And so what I tell people is if you struggle with worry and fear and anxiety, the Bible is your book, but more than that, the God of the Bible is your God. Okay, so our, our Lord speaks to these issues. Interesting statistics, about 60% of people in the UK would like to worry less. I really don't know what that says about the other 40%. <laughs> um, Maybe those are people who have already passed on. I don't know. You know, the, the issue with worry is over. But at least 60% of people in the U.K. would like to worry less. Uh, it, it's an epidemic in the U.K. Uh, listen to this. In 2008, American physicians wrote more than 50 million prescriptions for specifically anti-anxiety medications and more than 150 million for antidepressants, many of which were used for anxiety-related conditions. And that's because anxiety and depression are what I call twin sisters. They're the flip side of the same coin. Uh, they, they coexist. Uh, uh, psychologists call that co- comorbidity. Uh, two struggles, pathologies, living closely next to one another. And so antidepressants are often used to treat people who struggle with anxiety. One in five Americans will struggle with some form of anxiety this year. How many, how many millions of people are 20% of, of Americans? About 65 million people. Uh, they will struggle with anxiety to such a degree that, and this is where we move in the direction of it becoming a pathology, if you will. I don't really like that word, but that's, that's the word that's been given to us by uh, uh, the, the negative side of, of thinking about people, pathologies, typically are, are defined by uh, this, whenever it impacts your ability to function in some way or another for several days, maybe weeks. And then it also moves in the direction of becoming a pathology when it incapacit- incapacitates your ability to develop healthy, good relationships. So, Use the word pathology if you like. That's basically, when you read the the diagnostic statistic manual 4 or 5 or 4 TR, whatever one you choose to read these days, whenever you read the word pathology, it sounds real negative, but it's really very practical. This is is causing someone to really shut down personally, and it's affecting their relationships adversely. Okay? Uh, 65 million uh, Americans... That's, uh, that's astounding. That's astounding. What's interesting, too, as you think about the struggle with anxiety is um, you would think that as a society grew in its ability to provide safety and food and shelter, the, the level of anxiety and people struggling with anxiety would decrease. Uh, but just the opposite is the case. Um, Listen to this, modern developed societies are the safest, healthiest, and most prosperous that have ever existed. So we might expect that their citizens would have low, level, low levels of anxiousness. But the surveys inform us 
that the public reports more anxiety now, more anxiety now than in the past. These, stu- these studies indicate that anxiety is the single most common class of mental illness. Um, if, you, if you read the DSM-4 or the DSM-5, it's the first pathology that's talked about. Anxiety, and then they talk about mood disorders, depression, uh, bipolar, and psychosis. So anxiety is the first one they address. Um, but anxiety is the single most common class of mental illness. Almost one in five people has had an anxiety disorder during the past year, and more than a quarter of the population experienced one at some point in their lives. So the likelihood of you or someone that you love experiencing anxiety in a debilitating way, worry or fear, um, is highly likely. In fact, we probably could have started tonight, and I could have said, okay, just pair off and talk to the person next to you and talk about how anxiety has impacted your life personally, but also the life of someone you love. And I probably would have had a hard time turning the conversation off. Um, It's everywhere. It's prevalent. Um, Here's another thing, too. The experience of worry and anxiety. By the way, worry and anxiety and fear, those three words are nearly synonymous. Anxiety and worry are. Fear has a a different kind of component. Fear typically has an object, and it, it, it feels more rational. I'm afraid of spiders. I'm afraid of snakes. Now, anybody that's not afraid of snakes... Is, has a problem, right? Um, but uh, I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of speaking in front of 150 women, right? Those are fears. They typically have an object. Anxiety, worry tends to not have a specific object, and it, it tends to be, if you will, more irrational. It's the what-ifs. It's the catastrophizing, um, not knowing, and, uh, and, and yet the experience of of worry, anxiety, and fear uh, still are very similar. The experience of anxiety, worry, deeply physiological, very different from depression. If you struggle with depression, you go flat. You feel nothing, right? Anxiety, completely different. What happens when you're anxious? What happens when you're worried? Your body kicks in, fight or flight. Right, And there are good things about that, that that we'll discuss, but it also can be uh, something that goes into overdrive. Listen to what John uh, Nehemiah says. He says, Mental and bodily functions find in anxiety a meeting place that is unparalleled in other aspects of human life. You could argue that anxiety may be bipolar, um, uh, people who have experienced serious trauma in their lives, all experience uh, strong emotions. And oftentimes they are associated with a physiological component. Uh, Anxiety is often exhibited through disturbances in cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, and or muscular skeletal systems. Anxiety derives from the Indo-Germanic root, ang. And this is where, you know, uh, the Germans uh, pick up on this ang, which means narrowing, constricting, and tightening feelings, usually in the chest or throat. 
In such cases, people might not be consciously aware of the anxiousness, although it is being expressed through stomach aches, heart palpitations, difficulty in breathing, and the like. So anxiety is deeply physiological. Um, when was the last time you got mildly anxious? Uh, the last time I got mildly anxious was back in March, and I was preparing to go to England to spend about three weeks teaching and promoting the book, and I got so anxious about the trip that my back went out. The, the, the morning before I was to fly out, and when my, when my muscles tighten up in my back, uh, it's, it's, it's over. Um, and I'll come back to that illustration to talk about, you know, is, is worry a sin or not? Because that's always the question that comes up, and it's, it's a much more nuanced answer. But, uh, but no, I, I was experiencing anxiety. Do I have, you know, everything packed that needs to be packed? And I find myself getting a bit manic, and I, I uh, you know, am jittery. And then, you know, if I throw a cup of coffee on it early in the morning, it just ramps it up. Uh, but uh, do I have all my notes? Uh, I wonder how this is going to go. I, I'm not sure who these people are. I've never met them before. What co- I've got to travel here. I've got to catch a train here. I've got to get a plane there. So I was, I was getting worried and anxious, and it was expressing itself in my body. My muscles were tightening, tightening up. And I was sitting on a sofa, and I just, um, I can't even remember which way I twisted. I, I twisted, just I turned, really, not twisted. I turned to get a sock. And I felt my back seize up. Um, when I was a pastor, I don't know what's happened. These, uh, these uh, tightening of muscles has moved from my neck down to my lower back. When I was a pastor, I used to get what I would call cricks in my neck. And uh, they wouldn't go away for a week, you know, maybe even longer. And, and that's with a little bit of Flexeril and maybe a little painkiller, a little Valium, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, I... I, and I, I, I never made the connection between that anxiety and pastoral ministry. Go figure. Why didn't somebody in seminary make that connection for me? You know, when you enter pastoral ministry, you're entering an anxiety producing profession, right? So uh, very, very physiological. Now, let's, let's define um, anxiety. Uh, what is anxiety? Here's what anxiety is. Anxiety is over-concern. Okay? When, when Jesus is teaching on anxiety in Matthew 6, he talks about, don't be worried. And, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But the word he uses there literally is translated a distracted or divided mind. And within the broader context of Jesus' teaching... He's saying this, uh, you have a divided or distracted mind. Rather than living in my kingdom, right, you're living, you're trying to live in two kingdoms, my kingdom and your kingdom, and it's, it's not going to go well for you. Because the moment you start living in your kingdom, you start trying to find comfort and strength and stability in the things of this world, you're going to become unstable because this world is not stable enough to, to, to buoy you up. And that's why Jesus says at the end of chapter 6, seek first my kingdom. He's, he's calling us back to a, a singly devoted mind. And so 
when we're experiencing worry or anxiety, what's happening is we are we are uh, we have over concern about things in this world. And Jesus mentioned several. Don't worry about food, drink, and clothing. See, you're, you're worried about those things, but look at what my heavenly Father is doing. He's on site. He's caring for his creation, and he's caring for the birds, and he's caring for the very flowers that you see. And you're more important to him than flowers and birds. So why would you think that he's not going to be actively present and caring for you? Seek first my kingdom. And by the way, I'm here. You know, the kingdom isn't this abstract reality. The kingdom is all about the king. And so Jesus is helping us understand what, what worry is. Worry is, is over-concern. And, and, and so what I say is what we're trying to do as we live the Christian life is we're trying to live in this zone of concern. I have concerns. I'm concerned about whether it's safe to get out on the road on a Friday night real late when maybe folks who have been drinking are out too, all right? And so I think, you know, I may encourage my kids in light of that not to be out on the road on a Friday night late like that. Well, that's, that's godly concern. And at the same time, it's undergirded with just dependent childlike prayer. God, I'm entrusting my kids, I'm entrusting myself uh, to you, and yet at the same time, I know that you have called me to act responsibly, to be wise, to be rightfully concerned, but that concern is resting in dependent prayer. And what we can tend to do is we can move in two directions. I've already mentioned one. We can go in the direction of under-concern, indifference, and check out. Or we can move in the other direction of over-concern. Uh, and that really is what worry and anxiety is all about. It's an over-concern. It's, if you will, an over-love of this kingdom, this earthly kingdom. Um, it's, it's losing a sense of priority in, in terms of your loyalties and your allegiances. Uh, now, it's, it's connected to body and experience and all those things that we'll look at in just a moment, but when you move over in the direction of over-concern, now you're talking about various degrees. So someone may struggle with worry and anxiety, and it's, it's not utterly debilitating. You know, it doesn't shut you down for several days, and it's not impacting your relationships in a terribly adverse way. Um, but you move more in the direction of what, what are labeled pathologies, and here are a few that are are mentioned in, uh, in some of the, the clinical literature, general anxiety disorder. This is anxiety at a level where now it's become pathological. It's debilitating. Um, social anxiety disorder, where your, your fear of being in groups begins to incapacitate your ability to relate to people. And, and as, as Christians, we would say it's, it's incapacitating your ability to love and serve others. Um, phobias, panic attacks. Um, who in this room hasn't experienced some form of panic and a panic attack? Uh, your breathing and your heartbeat, and you're like, where did that come from, right? And you, have you ever, and what's, what's worse is, where did that, oh my, and you start to freak out over the fact that you're freaking out. <laughs> and it, it has this kind of, Real crazy feedback effect, doesn't it? 
so your primary emotion gets kind of hit with a secondary emotion, and, and we're off to the races. Uh, so panic attacks, acute stress disorder. Acute stress disorder, uh, you've experienced some form of trauma, and it impacts you for several weeks, but then it goes away. Um, Obsessive-compulsive disorders. Uh, this is where someone becomes hypervigilant. And because maybe they've been in a situation where they've been out of control, they then overcompensate and become hypervigilant and try to control certain areas of life, whatever that may be. But that's uh, typically where obsessive-compulsive disorders uh, emerge from. And then one that we hear a lot about, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, those are fundamentally fear, anxiety, worry um, struggles. And we're just, we're just moving in the direction of intensity. What are the various treatments? And again, this is where I get a little bit more technical. I didn't talk about this in the book. But what are the, the various treatments for worry uh, that you'll find out there, that you'll bump into? Uh, one of the most common is cognitive behavioral therapy, um, kind of the ABCDE, what's the activating event, what are my beliefs, what were uh, the consequences when I acted, um, how do I begin to debate with myself the validity of those beliefs, and then how do I move back into the real world. It's a, it's a, a real kind of in-your-head form of therapy, and uh, Christians use it a lot, um, and it, it is helpful for people. Um, you can ask me questions about how to think about those things. I'm actually talking about that this week in the class. Another um, effective form of therapy that uh, isn't rooted in the gospel or scripture is called dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, how many of you have heard mindfulness? Yeah, mindfulness is one of the five components of DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. We're going to be talking about that in the class uh, as well and how we as Christians understand that. Um, emotional focus therapy. How many of you have heard of EFT? Sue Johnson, right. Um, that's a relatively new therapy. It's about 20 years old. Uh, Sue Johnson is, is the person that's developed that. It's really helpful for people in marriages where oftentimes their conflict is not driven by the anger that's on the surface surface, it's really fear-based underneath. Uh, I'm, I'm needing emotional connection with you, and I'm trying to get it in the wrong way, and you're reacting to my trying to get it from you, but really, we're both fearful. We're, we're having primal panic. That's what she says. Uh, primal panic that I've lost attachment from you as my significant other, my spouse or child, and, uh, and so EFT has become uh, very helpful. Uh, desensitization therapy. Uh, you're worried or anxious, um, so uh, you don't want to get on the plane. Well, let's, let's drive over to the airport and just watch the planes take off and land. You know, let's, let's walk up and see if we can't get through security. These days, I hear you can get through security pretty easily. <laughs> you know, the TSA is really kicking in for us, aren't they? Um, you know, let's walk up to the plane. Um, let's sit down with a pilot. You know, just all these things, you're trying to desensitize the person to the thing that they're, they're fearful or worried or anxious about. Um, and these common therapies are, are effective for people. Um, so 
I don't have a whole lot to say about that right now, but I will say this. As Christians, whenever we hear that someone has been helped by something and it sounds weird to us, the first thing we should do is not, well, that's not biblical. You know, you know what, what about you know, this, this practice? Um, it's strange. We should, we should reject it outright. Now, the first thing we should do is, what have you found helpful? What has been helpful about that form of therapy? And then you begin to, to step back and say, maybe they've discovered something that the Scriptures already you know, capture, we just haven't seen it. And, and yet the scriptures speak actually more persuasively and, 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 uh, and deeply to uh, what is actually helping someone. But those are typical therapies that uh, are helpful to people. Uh, medication proves to be helpful, uh, as you can see. Uh, antidepressants, uh, anti-anxiety medications, um, uh, as with any medication, including Tylenol, there are always side effects, right? Whenever you're putting something, some chemical in your body, there may be positive things, but there are always going to be negative things. How many Tylenol do you have to take to end your life, to shut down your kidneys or your liver? Is it 15? Yeah. So, you know, any and everything that you're putting into your body can have a potential positive impact or a negative impact. Um, but medication does provide help for people. And again, uh, we should be thankful, uh, but also cautious. You know, if, if that's helpful, I'm glad. I don't want you to suffer. But are you aware of the side effects? And, and while you may be uh, experiencing some alleviation to your suffering, what does it still look like for you to grow in grace in the face of this struggle? How does Jesus want to meet you in the midst of this struggle? And then there are complementary and alternative treatments, uh, diet, meditation, yoga, breathing techniques, relaxation techniques, um, and, uh, and all of those things are, are utilized to help people. Uh, now, how, how are we to think about anxiety? And I want to stress this as clearly as possible, because there's a reason why those therapies are useful. And it's sometimes because they're thinking more, more biblically about how to understand the, the person more than sometimes we are as Christians. Um, here's what you find in uh, anxiety. It's the dangers of reductionism. When we take one thing and we isolate it and say, that's the main issue, that's the only issue. And um, most forms of treatment tend to focus on one thing, and they prove to be helpful, but the danger is in then concluding this is the only solution. So if medication helps, oh, that is the answer, um, and these others as well. Factor, listen to this, factors related to biology so your physical body, your brain, your body, psychology, that's just your thinking, right? Um, life history, things that have happened to you, uh, events and uh, people who have done good things and not so good things to you, social and natural environments are omnipresent potential causes of anxiety. Some see anxiety as a result 
of moral flaws or spiritual imperfections. And that can be the danger, right, of a reductionistic Christian understanding of anxiety. Um, In some periods, a single form of explanation has gained undisputed prominence. And what we want to do as Christians is we want to be as sophisticated and nuanced as every individual is complex. That's our goal. Uh, Look at this next slide, the concentric circles. Um, Look at this um, slide. You see the concentric circles? Now, this, I think, is a way at getting at the complexities and the multi-layers that make you, you. Uh, Your strengths and your weaknesses, your struggles and your your, uh, virtues. Um, There in the very center is the heart, and, and we would argue that at the end of the day, we are fundamentally covenantal beings. And what I mean by that is we are worshipers. We are entering into covenant with either the true and living God or something else. That is fundamentally at the foundation of who we are. Okay? So, important to keep in mind. But look at all the other layers that make you you. Your brain. Um, neuroscience. Brain scans. We're just beginning to tap into you know, what's actually going on in the brain with emotional dysregulation, with anxiety, uh, fear, uh, ADD, bipolar, all those things. They're, they're, they're brain issues that are at play. Your body, right? Uh, your body is a great blessing, but it's also a curse because it breaks down. You know, the older you get, the more it breaks down. But some people's bodies break down more quickly than others, and, and some have bodily weaknesses uh, that others don't have, and other people have bodily strengths. But, but we live in, in the reality of brains and bodies, and guess what? We live in the reality of brains and bodies that are brains and bodies in a broken world. Okay? So these brains and bodies have experienced the effects of, of the fall. Now, they're not, they're not uh, uh, without the vestiges of still being made in God's image, Right? Um, all of us have an event history. Stuff has happened to us. Good stuff, bad stuff. All right? See how, how you add layers and, and see how all of a sudden you can begin to appreciate how unique and distinct you are in your own struggle. And that's why no one really struggles with anxiety in the same way the next person does. Uh, there are common features, uh, but, but they're all different layers. We all have a relational history. Some people have been nice to us. Some people have been mean. Um, Some of us have have experienced significant trauma. We all live in a political context, right? Talking about anxiety in the United States may feel a little different than if you're in North Korea, right? That's a very different political context. Um, We all live in a different cultural context, um, uh, you know, shame-based cultures, honor and shame-based cultures, different from other cultures. Uh, what has the cultural context added to the layering on of your struggle with anxiety? Maybe it's not appropriate to express that, and so you just, you know, tamp it down, and you don't deal with it. Uh, socioeconomic context. 
And you could add to that education. Your level of education uh, determines your ability to get help sometimes, right? Most of the homeless people on the streets of our cities and our nation, many of them are veterans. Many of them have significant issues, schizophrenia, um, all kinds of struggles, and they, they can't get the help that they need. Um, some of them were in mental hospitals, and guess what? They were let go at some point, and no one cared for them. And where are they going to go? They're going to go sleep under a bridge. Um, so their socioeconomic uh, and educational level impacted their ability to get help. Here's another layer, male or female, right? Um, you women experience anxiety differently than we men do. And I, I'm, let me say... Yeah, um, a woman living in this world experiences the reality of things not being safe more than a man does. I believe that. Um, racial dynamics, right? If you're not the right color and the right gender in the right neighborhood, you may have problems uh, that are of no fault of yours. Um, there's a, uh, I, I'm just adding them here. Uh, as I've used this diagram, people have helped me add more layers. We all grew up in a particular religious context. Some of you grew up in a very fundamentalist, legalistic, guilt-producing kind of context. And some of you grew up in a, a rich, grace, God loves you, He's for you, He's committed to you context. Some of you grew up in kind of a flat, mainline, liberal context where, you know, you just kind of, move along and pick yourself out by your bootstraps. You go to church and you hear a sermon and the pastor says, yeah, you did a pretty good job this week and then kicks you on the way out the door. Do a little better next week. You know, those are different kind of shaping influences, right? And all of those layers feed into your experience of anxiety and how, um, how difficult it might be. With every layer that you add, and if those layers are layers that bring negativity um, suffering, then your struggle with anxiety is going to increase. All right? And so one of the takeaways from this is when you're helping someone who's struggling with anxiety, and we'll see this in the case study, uh, you want to get to know the person. You want to spend time getting to know them. You know, and someone is struggling with panic attacks, and you're thinking, well, what's wrong with you? Come on, you know, aren't you a Christian? And then you find out, oh, I oh, you just share with me that you were abused habitually for 15 years growing up. Oh, that's new information. Now I get a better sense of, and maybe I have a little more compassion for you as you struggle with panic attacks. And that's probably not all you struggle with. Um, so we're, we're layering. Now, let me, let me say this. How does the Bible look at all of these concentric circles? The Bible says all of that is spiritual. All right? The spiritual thing isn't just an aspect. It's all spiritual. Why? Because we are covenantal beings living with a brain, body, event history, relational history, living in a political context, cultural context, socioeconomic context, having religious shaping influences, male and female. We're living with all of that before God. And are we living with all of that before God in faithful growth and grace and covenant faithfulness to God? Or are we living 
with all of that in covenant unfaithfulness. And then the reality of the struggle, right? But the Bible would consider all of this spiritual. And so when we talk about someone having a spiritual problem, uh, I, think, I think we need to change our, our, uh, our, our language when it comes to the person. All of this is spiritual. It's not just that centerpiece, the heart. Um, it's, it's the piece that is, is thinking vertically, relating to God within the context of all this. But all of this is important. And the reason all of it is spiritual is because God takes all of it seriously. He doesn't just say your heart's the only thing that matters here. No, he takes all of it seriously. Uh, and he knows our weaknesses. He knows our frailties. Okay, what do, um, uh, what do anxious people need? Anxious people need strength, stability, encouragement, and support. And in light of that, I want you to, to look at Matthew chapter 6, and you have it printed for you um, uh, there in your, your PowerPoint presentation. What I'd like to do for this, um, this period here is I want to look at three passages in particular. I want to look at Matthew 6, and then I want to look at Acts 18. Acts 18 is a case study of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6 where he tells us not to worry. Um, and it's a case study looking at the, the Apostle Paul himself who's struggling with worry and anxiety and fear. And then I want to look finally at Luke 12, and then I'll mention uh, some other, other items as we think about how the Scriptures address the issue of, of anxiety and worry. And what ultimately is the Bible doing? The Bible already provides categories for us to say, all right, we live in broken bodies, broken brains. We live in a broken world where bad things have happened to us. It's already taken all of that seriously, okay? You read the Bible and you see that God understands all that. So what is God doing? God is saying, how can I, with all of that in mind, call you to myself so that you're living more and more in covenantal faithfulness to me? That's how the, the Bible approaches us as broken human beings. Um, look at Matthew 6. So here's Jesus' teaching on worry. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry. That's a command. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And here he goes, you know, making his case. He's giving us reasons. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. See? If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So he's saying, I care for you more than the birds of the air or the grass or the flowers. And that's what you're to be hearing. I care for you. Um, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. 
and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And then here's the call. It's the call of this covenantal faithfulness within the context of a broken brain and body and suffering. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Uh, And you might argue that Jesus is saying, live in the present, right? That's, That's what mindfulness basically is. Live in the present. Don't get hijacked by tomorrow. Don't get hijacked by your past. Live in the present. Um, And Jesus is giving you a reason to live in the present. Don't add tomorrow's worries and anxieties to today. You have enough to deal with today. And not only does God care for you, but, uh, oh, by the way, I'm present with you. Uh, Seek first his kingdom. And by the way, the reason you can seek first his kingdom is because I, the king, am with you and in you. Uh, so he's, he's calling us to covenantal faithfulness in the midst of, of suffering and difficulty. A uh, couple other things stand out in this passage. Jesus says it makes sense to worry. The first chapter in living without worry is why not worry? You know, you look at the world we live in, and if you don't worry, there's something wrong with you, right? Because we live in a very, very unpredictable, unsafe, crazy world. And there are a lot of things that we can worry about. It makes sense to worry. Jesus is acknowledging that. Uh, Today has enough trouble of its own. You've got enough on your plate, enough to worry about. And and you need to wrestle with those worries and anxieties that are real, that are palpable, that that you experience. And then he defines what is worry, which I've already done. Uh, It's this distracted mind, and he's calling us back to covenantal faithfulness, relating rightly to God in the midst of the stuff that's happening in and around us. All right. So Jesus is realistic and sympathetic and he speaks on the heels of commands, uh, promises. Um, we'll, we'll consider the tone of his command in just a moment. Um, let's look at anxiety in the Christian faith. Um, here's Paul on, the, uh, on his second missionary uh, journey. He's, he's reaching the end of his second missionary journey in Acts 18. And if you know anything about Paul, he was leaving Athens. And we don't really have any report of any real fruit being born in Athens as a result of Paul's working. So he's, he's leaving Athens. It's been a, uh, really an experience of failure as far as, far as we can tell. Uh, and he, he's going to Corinth. And Corinth is kind of this big metropolitan city that is just wild and crazy and uh, filled with immorality and, and challenges. Um, and Paul is on the road to Damascus. And um, uh, he says this. He says, uh, I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling in 1 Corinthians 2.3. So Paul's acknowledging his struggle with fear and worry and anxiety. And this is what Jesus says to him in, in, uh, 
in Acts 18. He says this to Paul. He appears to Paul in a vision and he counsels Paul. Okay? Uh, and many of you are saying, if Jesus would appear to me and counsel me, I wouldn't struggle with worry either. But he's actually appearing to you now in the same way that he appeared to Paul. And look what Jesus says. He first says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And it says, as a result of that, Paul was strengthened. He found stability, encouragement, and support. And it says he stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the Word of God. And if you look at uh, the rest of Acts 18, you see just incredible fruit as a result of Paul staying there. But Paul's in a place where he's experiencing what I call a worry or fear or anxiety spiral. And Jesus speaks to him, and and here's the spiral. It it begins with worry. Uh, It leads to paralysis. And, and how does Jesus respond? Here's worry. And, and, and Jesus says, do not be afraid, Paul. Then this paralysis that begins to set in. You begin to shut down. Uh, or you might become uh, hypervigilant. What does Jesus say? Keep on doing what you're doing. Keep on speaking. Keep on leaning into your fears and anxieties. Uh, do not be silent. And then he has this wonderful promise. Uh, as, you, as you start to move in the direction of isolation, what does Jesus say? For I am with you, right? The fourth uh, stage of a worry spiral is paranoia. You start worrying about everything and everybody. And, and Jesus comforts Paul with these words, and no one is going to attack and harm you. And we could argue that that ultimately is true of us if we belong to Jesus, even in death. He has his arms around us, right? Um, Death does not get the final say over us. Our king does. And then phase five, just utter hopelessness. Um, Why do this at all? And, And Jesus has this promise. Paul, keep doing this. Don't be afraid for I'm with you. No one's going to harm, harm you, attack you because I have very, I have many people in this city. There are people that you right now are deeply fearful of that are your potential future brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, And so Jesus Jesus does what? He provides Paul with strength, stability, encouragement, support. And within the context of that relationship, what happens? With all of the circumstances and the sufferings and the difficulties that are a part of Paul's experience leaving Athens and going to Corinth, Jesus speaks meaningfully to him and says, I want you to live in covenantal faithfulness to me and here are all the reasons why you should. Because I'm I'm for you. Now, um, folks have said, you know, well, if Jesus would appear to me and speak to me like he did Paul, I wouldn't struggle with worry either. And here's what's interesting about what's going on here. You would think, wouldn't you, that if Jesus in his post-resurrected state is going to appear to Paul, and this is a unique experience, right? You would think that Jesus would give him some really good new information. (laughs) When you read that, what do you hear? You know, unfortunately, we're kind of jaded. 
You hear the same old things you hear all throughout the Old Testament. Fear not, for I am with you. Be courageous. Move into the situation. I'm here. I'm committed to you. Jesus doesn't give him anything new because what? he doesn't have anything new to give him. He's already given him everything. And then, the, you know, the advantage that Paul has is he actually has an even greater reason to believe that God really means what he says because he's looking at the, the crucified and risen Savior. So God really does mean that he cares. He really does mean that he's for me. He really does mean that he's with me. He sent his spirit. He's right now in heaven interceding for me, right? And he's promised this, this future that, that, is, that is glorious. And so it's within the context of anxiety and fear and worry that God is saying, this is a place, it feels like a desert, but it could be an oasis. It could be a place where you find me because this is where you're weak. And this is where you find the strength to admit your weakness. Um, let, me, let me mention a couple other things. Just uh, consider Luke chapter 12, verse 32. See, the, the $64,000 question, $64, question is, how do I get this stuff to be functionally real for me in the moment? Um, and that will, that will take us into a conversation about how much we need one another. And the same way that Jesus treats fearful, worried people is the same way you want to be treated by other people, and it's the same way you need to be, need to be treating other people. Okay? And, and here it is. Luke 12, 32, same account. Uh, this is the last chapter in the book. This is how I close uh, the worry book. Luke 32, it's about three pages. My, uh, my editor cut back three. It was six pages to begin with. <laughs> Luke 12, 32, within the context of Jesus' teaching, this is the only other place in the Gospels that we find Jesus' teaching on worry. It's in Matthew and in Luke 12. Look at what Jesus says. He says, do not be afraid. And then he says this, little flock. Have you ever seen that before? Little flock. Well, that's a very tender way to talk to people who are struggling with anxiety and struggling to know if they really believe that God loves them. Right? And then he adds a promise, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Again, and to give you the king of the kingdom. Uh, when I was uh, a parent with young children, um, you know, there'd be an occasion where there'd be a thunderstorm or there would be uh, an occasion where one of our kids would be having a nightmare for whatever reason. And you know what it's like, right? They, they come running into your room. And what do you do, even as a sinful parent? You know, do you say, do not be afraid, go to bed, <laughs> Right? I mean, you don't shame your child, you know, and you don't scold them. What do you do? You say, oh, no, you get out of bed and you pick them up and you say, oh, no, it's going to be okay. Mommy and daddy are here, right? We love you. We care for you. It's going to be all right. Here, sit up in my lap and, and, and just calm down. What do you, even as sinful parents, right? Our hearts are wrapped up in our kids, and when they're struggling with worry and anxiety and fear, 
We don't shame them and scold them and point a, a finger in their face, do we? No, and that is not the way Jesus treats us. Right? We're his, his little flock. We're vulnerable. And we're filled with fear. And what does he say? Do not be afraid, little flock. That's what I need. I need that. You need that. The people around you need this. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Just a wonderful passage. Um, Paul says this. He says, uh, confront the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, literally fearful. Encourage the fearful and cling to the weak. Put your arm around the weak person. Um, We major on the first. We major on the first. Confront the unruly. We see somebody who's anxious and worried, and maybe they're getting hysterical and emotional, and we don't know what to do, and we start freaking out, and we start to get fearful, and so we rebuke them. Stop it! Right? That is not what you and your your brothers and sisters in Christ need. You encourage the fearful. If you look at the categories of people in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, confront the unruly. Who were these folks that Paul was talking about? These were people in the Thessalonican church that were thinking, oh, Jesus is going to come back any day now, and so we won't go to work. Right? We're just waiting for his return. So what does Paul do? He says, look, guys, look, gals, there's a commandment. It's the fourth commandment. And it says, six days you shall labor, the seventh you shall rest. I like the seventh day, but six days you shall labor. And he says here, you're you're in clear violation of God's specific and revealed will. So what does he do? He says, go back to work. Right? He doesn't shame them, scold them. He just, this, this confrontation is not, you know, getting in their face. He says, you need to get back to work. Um... Encourage the faint-hearted, the fearful. Who are the fearful and the faint-hearted in, in this church? There are people who've lost loved ones, and what are they, what are they saying? You know, we're grieving. And Paul says, yes, you are grieving. But you don't grieve as the world does. And you're fearful, but I want to encourage you with these words, right? You're, you're going to be reunited. There's going to be a, a great you know, reunion banquet and it's called the marriage feast of the Lamb. And, and you're, going to be, you're going to be there. And your loved ones who have died in Christ are going to be there. And Encourage one another with these words, he says. So you've got fearful people and Paul encourages them. And then you have people who are weak. Um, I think this applies to people who are struggling at a deep, if you will, pathological level. Their lives are, are breaking down. They're weak. The category that that Paul has in mind, the people group that Paul probably has in mind in this church are those who have come out of very, very promiscuous, sexually promiscuous lifestyles and they're having a hard time breaking free from that lifestyle and they need somebody to come around and put their arm around them and walk with them on a daily basis. When you're struggling with a, a strong addiction, when you're struggling with um, uh, a deep uh, issue like anxiety or fear and worry, and it has become debilitating. It has become what the, the, the psychiatrists and psychologists call pathological. You're weak, right? You need help. 
You need somebody to put, put your arm around you and walk with you. I'm here, not just every Tuesday for one hour and you pay me. I'm here for the long haul and I'm going to walk with you. And, and not just me, but this sister and that sister and this sister and that. We're, we're here. We're going to help because you're in a place of deep weakness and, and we want to, to be useful to you. Okay, um, I'm not getting at a lot of these PowerPoint slides, am I? And you're going to just feel terribly ripped off. Um, maybe that's a reason I should just say read the book. Um, what, 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 am I, what am I doing? I'm, I'm setting you up for the case study, and I'm, I'm calling you and me to a, a ministry to the fearful and the anxious that is driven by encouragement. What do they need? Stability, strength, encouragement, and support. Err on the side of encouragement. When you, when you see someone who's struggling with fear and anxiety, how can I pray for you? Let me, you know, let me help you see the ways that God is at work in your life. Be encouraged by that. Um, uh, let me just mention these... Uh, last slides. They're, they're actually just uh, pointing you in the direction of the different chapters of the book and, and what I wrote. So in, uh, in chapters 3 through 6, I'm talking about the many uh, angles of anxiety. Okay? The many angles of anxiety. See that? Anxiety's many angles. Um, so, in, in, Luke, in Luke 12 and uh, in Matthew 6, Jesus tends to be focusing on the future. You know, what you will wear, what you will drink, what you, you know, uh, will eat. Uh, and there is an aspect of that, but there are also ways in which your past can, can be a part of worry. Um, and in chapter 3, I talk about past sins. There, there may be d- deep guilt. And maybe shame that is, is driving your, your anxiety and your fear and your worry. And uh, what I do in that chapter is I, I show how the grace of the gospel addresses your past. Uh, you might argue, I, I didn't have this in mind, but you might argue that the Bible is doing a better job of dialectical behavioral therapy and helping you live with mindfulness in the present because what does it say? I've taken care of your past. Um, chapter 4 is looking at past sufferings. And I in, uh, begin with some vignettes of people who have suffered greatly and how does God meet those who have ex- experienced trauma in their past. Um, he, he meets them in those places of difficulty. Uh, chapter 5 focuses on worry in your future. And it's interesting in the Luke, the Luke 12 passage, um, Jesus says, hey, um, if you want something to worry about, if you want something to be fearful about, let me tell you who you should be fearful of. It's not the one who can destroy the body, but it's the one who can destroy the body and and throw the soul into hell. (laughs) And he's talking about himself, right? And it's it's an interesting way. It's kind of a reality therapy, if you will. Wake up. You know, Here's, here's the big issue that ought to concern you, that ought to keep you up night and day, and that is the reality of your sin. But then he goes on to talk about, and I've taken care of that too. 
And then we have all kinds of promises in Scripture about this future consummation and glory. So uh, uh, the Bible addresses uh, worry in our future and then worry in our present. So how do we live in the present? And that chapter is really, really unpacking the promises of God. What are the promises of God all about? These are, these are future commitments. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of you. You are my adopted child. And, and you're taking those promises and you're letting them uh, uh, function for you in the moment uh, so that you're, you're focused in the moment, you're present in the moment, and you're, you're relating to God wisely in light of his grace and you're not being hijacked by the past or the future. And then I, I just move into how to actually change. And uh, that chapter begins with this. Um, rather than starting with all the bad stuff in your life, start with the good stuff. Start with grace-laden thanksgiving. One of the things that you need and the friends in your life need is they need you to be the kind of person that is always looking for good stuff that God is doing in your life, always looking for the, the movement and the wind of the Holy Spirit at work in you. Um, and not only, not only do you need to do that with other people, but you need to be doing that with yourself. Begin there. Then you can move in the direction of grace-laden self-examination. And, and you can get a sense of, okay, what am I over-concerned about? What do I over-love? What what in this created world has become too important to me? And you're dealing with the roots. I'm sinking, I'm sinking my roots into something other than the grace of the living God and my relationship with Him. I'm trying to kind of straddle kingdoms, and as a result, I'm not doing well. Um, and then there's a word of caution in there. Whenever you're doing that kind of self-examination, you don't need to do it alone. You need other people to help you. But there's a word of caution. I have a friend who is deeply anxious about flying. Okay? He, he can't, can't stand the thought of getting on an airplane. And if you were to go to him and say, look, brother, you're a Christian, and what you need to remember is that, you know, when you die, you're going to heaven. <laughs> now... Uh, And he would look at you and say, you know, that's not helpful because actually that, that's not an issue with me. He actually has deep faith, great faith, more faith than me about that. He says, I'm not, I'm not worried about dying. I know what's going to happen when I die. I'm, I'm, I'm good with that, right? That's a, that's a really lively faith. Here's a guy who's crippled with anxiety, but I don't, I don't care about death. I'm confident in, in who I am in Christ. And you start working with him, and you realize after a while that it's not a fear of death that's driving his, you know, discomfort with getting on a plane. Here's, here's what you find out. You find out that he's not afraid of dying, but he is terrified by what he's going to do and how he's going to act and what a fool he's going to make of himself while the plane is crashing. <laughs> you see that? I don't care what I do when the plane's going down in flames. You know, I'm going to make a complete idiot of myself. I don't want to die. You know? And, and here this guy, he has, you know, great faith and confidence in what's going to happen, happen to him when he dies. But he, he's worried about his reputation. That's what is, that is, what, that is, what is anxiety producing in his life. And, and then 
he would say, and, and now as I think about that, and I start to look at other areas of my life, I find that I am ruled by others' opinions of me. And that's what, that's what heightens my sense of anxiety, uh, not only when I think about getting on a plane, but in other contexts as well. So just a word of caution as we engage in the process of meaningful self-examination. And then there's a, a chapter in the book on suffering. All right. Um, we have to do honest, heart-searching work with Scripture as we develop a practical theology of suffering. And uh, a lot of passages in Scripture that I don't like, one of them is Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, I believe. It says this, Paul says, Here are two graces, here are two gifts that God has given to you. One is to believe in His name. I think, okay, we're going somewhere. He says, the other is to suffer for his sake. That's the second gift. And the word grace is used there, charis. And, and if you're like me, I say, I like gift one. I think I'd like to return gift two. <laughs> but there's something rich about growing in this place of understanding suffering. Um, how many of you have, have talked about union with Christ? We're united with Christ, right? Uh, I'm justified. I'm adopted. Uh, I have the Spirit. There's one aspect of union with Christ that I don't know if we ever talk about as much as we should. What's that, what, what's that aspect of union with Christ? Suffering. suffering. We are united to Jesus in His suffering. And, and there's a something redemptive about that, that it's a mystery and it doesn't make life easy, but there's this hope that begins to spill in when we understand the reality of suffering and what God is up to. Uh, and so there's a, there's a chapter on suffering. And then um, I'm not going to cover these because you can read them in the book. I, I look at 1 Peter 5, 6-11, where Peter talks about casting your cares on the Lord. What I'm trying to do now in the rest of the book is say, how do you begin to grow in covenantal faithfulness? How do you begin to talk to God in the midst of all the stuff that makes you you? All right? Heart issues, brain, body, event history, relational history, all of that. How do you still, with all of that, cast your anxieties on the Lord? And I look at 1 Peter, and then I use Psalm 27 as an example of, of Christian meditation what it looks like, what, what it looks like as you, as you follow the psalmist, uh, cast your anxieties on him. Because the psalmist in Psalm 27 is looking at life in a broken world where things are very scary, and yet he presses into that and connects with God in the midst of it. Okay? So no matter how many layers and how complicated the layers are, we want to pay attention to the layers, we want to address the layers, but at the end of the day, we're calling ourselves to covenantal faithfulness. God wants your heart in the midst of your struggle, and He wants you to find your, your hope and your confidence and your strength and stability in Him.